0: Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC podcast.
1: I think there's a stereotypical belief that Chinese people are docile, or at least muted and agreeable most of the time. After all, you typically don't see ballistic freakouts of my people on the news. But like any other people of color, the news and the truth were separate. <laughs>
2: That was Lindsay Wong, reading from her best-selling memoir, The Woo wu The memoir is provocative. It's a front-row seat to neighborhood raids by police, screaming matches, and wild family stories about how ghosts are real and how Lindsay's family were possessed by spirits. That's what the name of the book is all about. The wu woo, woo*.
1: The woo woo um, in my Chinese family was because my dad didn't speak English and he didn't know the word for ghost. And so the word woo-woo came up. Um, So my family does not believe in the existence of mental illness and they blame all their problems, all their aberrant behavior on Chinese ghosts. And so whenever something would happen to one of us, it was always a woo-woo's fault, right? It was always a ghost's fault. And I think it's funny that woo-woo in Western culture means something magical or or mystical, but in our family, it's really referring to all our problems.
2: Whatever the woo-woo is, Lindsay's way of grappling with it has been by writing about it. But the release of her memoir, even though her family knew it was coming, elicited a response that she never had experienced before.
1: I think they actually didn't realize that the book, people would want to read something that I had written. They just thought it was like a strange hobby of mine.
2: I'm A.C. Rowe. This is The Doc Project. Today's story is, in its own sense... A memoir. A memoir about the aftermath of writing a memoir. And one writer's efforts to try to figure out her not-so-traditional Chinese-Canadian family. A warning. There is some expressive cussing in this episode. It has not been bleeped out. So, sensitive ears, be warned.
1: Lindsay we will take it from here. Mom and dad are getting your book from the library, my brother informed me a month after my debut memoir, The Woo Woo, came out in October 2018. They're number 10 on hold. Why aren't they buying it at a store like normal people, I complained. It's only like $20. They've already spent enough money on your stupid writing degrees, he said. My kid brother was being sarcastic. Our relationship was one where he provoked me to the point of antagonism, and he would roll his eyes if I asked him a personal question. He also attended the same writing school that I did, studied with the same professors, but was too embarrassed to tell anyone we were related. Perhaps it was sibling rivalry. Perhaps it was because we were raised to compete with one another, but we weren't usually nice when we interacted. Are you going to read my memoir? I asked him tentatively. I wondered if he would complain about his portrayal or that his character was only reduced to three lines. Nope, I think you're a shitty writer, he said, sounding bored as he hung up on WhatsApp. After our conversation, I reflected on what transpired between us. Maybe it was a blessing that he didn't care that I wrote a tell-all memoir about our family. Chapter 1, From Dumpster, page 21 Oh, fuck you, my mother screamed, and hurled her dinner at my father. At six, I was terrified, squatting under the table, as I watched her spongy chicken thigh tumble to the floor. My mother's plate had become a flying mallet, cracking a cupboard door off its hinges. My father, rolling his eyes and imitating her jerky facial spasms, mimicked my mother's high-pitched hysteria. Why are you trying to renovate the house, huh? Nothing wrong with kitchen, but everything wrong with your head. This was normal in our family, downplayed as a woo-woo's fault. The ghosts had possessed my mother again. Yet it was always frightening to be in the midst of such, in such Asian an Asian culture. Age. Mental illness is a taboo subject, and I had written a memoir discussing how our family didn't believe in depression or schizophrenia, how we blamed all of our aberrant behavior on ghostly possession. It should not have surprised me, but I inadvertently became the most dreaded, most reviled genre of writer, the memoirist, also known as the secret spiller or disruptor of families. Those who take up autobiographical writing as a preferred genre are either reckless or sociopathic. For memoirists, nothing is sacred or secret. Everything and everyone, including myself, is fair game. Memoirists are the true assholes of the literary world. Ask our agents. We are the first to hurl ourselves off of a plane sans parachute. All who have the extreme misfortune of being in our personal orbit are forced to jump with us too. But after the call with my brother, I sighed and forced down my feelings of guilt and nervousness. I thought of the American author Anne Lamott who wrote, You own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. However, little did I know, soon I would not have the luxury of hanging out the phone and not experiencing my family's real-time reactions. In 2012, I graduated from Columbia University. I wrote a memoir for my thesis project, but found out very quickly that no one wanted it. Hundreds of literary agents across two continents turned it down. While my classmates were selling their first books for an unholy six figures and publishing articles in The New Yorker, I slept on friends' couches across the US, Canada, and the UK, managing to stay unemployed. Moving home to live with my parents seemed like admitting I was a failed writer. It would be shameful. They would sigh and say, we told you to go to law school. Despite the constant rejection, I wasn't going to give up. I furiously queried even more agents. Want a darkly comedic memoir? I type, and the answer was, no, thanks. Then finally, in 2017, it happened. Just as I'd run out of money and friends' couches to crash on, I got an agent and I sold my memoir. Okay, it was only for $6,000, but whatever, it was something. And more than anything, I was left with a shred of hope. Maybe I don't suck that much, I thought. I was 30 at this point, and I felt like my writing career could possibly take off. It took me five years and multiple rejections to finally sell my memoir. To my absolute shock, my memoir, The Woo-Woo, was a finalist for the Hillary Weston Prize, the largest nonfiction award in Canada, worth $60,000. I did not win, but by January 2019, my writing career kicked into overdrive.
0: Joe, 60 seconds are on the clock. Okay. Why should The Woo-Woo win Canada Reads? Lindsay's book doesn't come with a warning, but really neither does life. And that's a scary truth, Canada.
1: The were The woo-woo today, right was home, a finalist the on Canada America, Reads. reads. But the Josie, America, a famed the fashion America, stylist and journalist, defended the woo-woo in the competition. This book will move you to
0: tears and anger and frustration, but it will move you to do something. Discussing mental health openly is the only way to start, and Lindsay's book is that conversation starter.
1: Time. Thank you very much, Jill. Being featured on Canada Reads means that your memoir will become an instant bestseller. Unfortunately, being a bestselling author in Canada does not mean you will become fabulously wealthy or even join the stratas of the lower middle classes. The more success the memoir got, the more people were reading about my family's mental illness problems and other stories that aren't that flattering depending on one's point of view. I often thought, I wonder how my mom and dad feel about this. But I never actually talked to them about it. Not because I was embarrassed, but because I didn't know how to broach the subject. Growing up, we didn't talk about our feelings or important subjects. I didn't even know if they read the book, or if they knew how much attention it was getting. The thing about putting your family's dirty laundry out there for the world to read is that people start to feel very comfortable asking you personal questions and casting their own judgment. I did more than 60 appearances in less than a year for my book tour. And without fail, during the Q&A portion of the events, I get a series of probing questions that cause me to pause a moment before answering because I was too shocked to tell them to mind their own goddamn business. Are you lonely? You seem lonely, someone once asked. Are you in a relationship? Another stranger said, waving a Barbie pink manicured hand in my face. You seem like you have severe intimacy issues. You shouldn't have children with your family history of mental illness, another stranger declared while both of my eyes twitched with uncontrollable discomfort. Women of color writers are often asked questions about their physical appearance, yet white male writers are lauded for their craft. But you're pretty, a male moderator once said, confused. How can you be the person you wrote about in the book? This was the kind of absolute nonsense I was fielding. But... I never really stopped to ask myself what types of inappropriate questions my family was getting. After all, the woo-woo is about their untreated mental illnesses. Chapter 1, from Dumpster, page 25. Our family insisted that supernatural outcasts charted our bodies because we were born with watery minds and squishy hearts. Which meant that anything dead could rent us for free. Randomly leaping inside us, these ghostly. I was living out of my suitcase, hopping from the airport to motel while still promoting my book After Canada Reads. After a whirlwind tour of Windsor, Hong Kong, Bali, and then back to Vancouver for my book tour, COVID had canceled all future international gigs. I was suddenly broke again and unable to pay rent. I've been dreading this moment the whole time after I graduated, but my only real option was moving back in with my parents to live in my childhood home. To live with the very same people whose secrets and skeletons that I'd shared on an international stage. What had I done? Hey, can I stay with you? I phoned my mother in April 2020 with some reluctance after looking at the negative dollar amount in my bank account. Even before the book, my relationship with both my traditional Chinese parents consisted of screaming and frequent misunderstandings. There was a long, constipated pause on the line after I asked my question, like she wasn't sure what to say, which was unusual for her. Fine, my mother eventually said, sighing. And that was the extent of our conversation about moving back home. Normally, she'd scold me until my eardrums hemorrhaged, but I figured she felt sorry for me because I was coughing and said that I thought I might have COVID. Shockingly, my mother said nothing as I unloaded my 10-plus garbage bags full of clothes and miscellaneous junk. She just stood there, staring at her feverish, broke daughter. She grunted once or twice as I made my way to the bedroom. It's only temporary, I told myself. In writing school, no one talks about what to do when you write a tell-all memoir about your family, and then you have to spend a global pandemic cohabitating with them. Looking back, I do get a bit of my parents' weirdness toward me. When our immigrant parents jumped continents so that their children wouldn't have to suffer farm work or resort to manual labor in the old country, they did not expect their offspring to become broadcast writers. Naturally, I thought my parents would be furious at me because of what I wrote. But what happened was far more surprising.
2: AC here. We need to take a quick break, but coming up, what happens when a writer starts living amongst her subjects? We'll be right back. Sit tight.
0: Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now.
1: Once I finished two weeks of miserable, lung-hacking, self-isolation on the second floor of my parents' house, I attempted to join my family at the dinner table. I was nervous about the onslaught of questions or accusations. But no one said anything as I plopped down and began helping myself to enormous portions of fresh jasmine rice and steamed chicken. No one said anything at all throughout the entire meal, like radio silence. Part of me was relieved. Part of me was amused. And the narcissistic writer in me was curious about what they all thought. This happened meal after meal for several weeks. Unable to resist, one night, I heard loud video game shooting sounds coming from my kid brother's room. So I walked in to ask him if mom and dad had actually read my book from the library. It had been about two years since my brother told me mom and dad were going to borrow the book from the library instead of buying it, surely, They would have read it by now, right? So what do the parental units think? I asked him at 3.30 in the morning. I assume they have read the book. My brother, glancing away from the television screen reluctantly, looked at me like the village idiot that he thinks I am. Who knows? He drawled in a bored, distracted voice. No one is talking about it, Lindsay. Guess no one will mind if I write a sequel. I joked, but my brother had already stopped listening. By month two of the pandemic, i had fully recovered from likely COVID fatigue and wheezing. And I noticed my family would turn funeral silent every time I clomped into the room. Growing up, my mother had a habit of gossiping on speakerphone to her sisters. And she would spend most of the daylight hours talking loudly or complaining She hadn't changed her habits over the years. Aya, you know what that lying bitch said to me? One of my aunties clucked on the phone in Cantonese. Shh, she's here, my mother quickly said, blanching. Stop talking. Who's there, I said. Who are you talking to? Nothing, my mother yelped at the phone. I'll call you back later. She hung up and stared at me, and I realized she was waiting for me to leave the room. With reluctance, I obliged. It finally dawned on me that they were afraid to give me anything that could be written about. Instead of berating me for slovenly habits like smoking or being a messy eater, my family would shush instantly, side-eyeing each other whenever I came into earshot. No one in my family really talked to me at all. Conversations ended before I arrived. At first, I was baffled. Then I was sweaty and nervous, wondering if anyone would violently explode or confront me about their less than flattering character portrayals in the woo-woo. This change in demeanor from them was nerve-wracking. I worried that they didn't love me like they used to, in their traditional Chinese way. It was a strange, uncomfortable, unsettling feeling, like being on a roller coaster and the vertical plunge never arrives. I was all at once amused, but also a little sad that my family didn't trust me enough to express themselves in the comfort of their own home. Mostly, I felt a little pathetic for hoping that we wouldn't ignore our undiagnosed mental issues, even though a secret part of me knew that we would continue on as if nothing happened. The truth is, I was totally okay with it because not dealing with their reaction was a lot easier than confrontation and anger toward me. My relief was palpable, undeniable. I did not have to defend my version of the truth or weakly explain why I wrote a memoir. I did not have to argue with anyone who might not have approved of me sharing uncouth family secrets. Except that they weren't happy. And I was sad. They didn't like how they were portrayed. But writing a memoir is like walking across a tightrope. You have to tell nothing but the truth. And unfortunately, the truth is complicated and sticky. Since April 2020, I've been living with my parents and it was July now. I was still unemployed and broke despite sending out my resume relentlessly. My mom and dad invited our extended family over for a family potluck that summer on one of the hottest days of the year. This was a disaster for me because I usually wore a giant hoodie to cover my six large tattoos. In the end, it was a failure. I had to take the sweater off because it was 38 degrees outside. There was no hiding the tattoos anymore. My parents hated tattoos. They believed that only criminals and pets were inked for identification purposes. And now, here I was, disappointing them again. Surely, I was possessed by some woo-woo demon. How else to explain my deranged behavior? After our guests left, I shuffle walked into the kitchen to talk to my father. He was standing at the sink with his back to me, but I sensed that I was the last person he wanted to interact with. Want me to help with the dishes? I said, trying to be helpful to avoid his lecture on how much he disapproved of tattoos. But this time, he said nothing. So I repeated myself. Finally, he half turned around and dismissed me with a beauty pageant wave just leave my father said sounding tired then i swore i heard him say the word please at first i thought i misheard him he was not the kind of man who bothered with niceties or politeness i didn't recognize him and then i realized that he didn't quite know what to say to me either perhaps he didn't fully recognize dispersion of his oldest daughter this person who spoke about her parents' flaws and lowest moments on radio and television. But what did he want me to do? Was my father afraid of me? Or was he afraid of what people thought of him? Did that make him a coward? Or did that make me a shitty Chinese daughter? Staring at him, standing at the sink, I felt confused about my topsy-turvy feelings. Rolling his eyes, my father seemed to recover. Then he grunted and loudly said, Out! I understood then that Chinese immigrant parents might tolerate their children enough to always let you live with them, but my parents' silence was neither cowardice nor fear. Non-speaking, is just their way of very pointedly, very bluntly, letting you know that they won't be giving you any more material for a second memoir. Of course I was not going to write a sequel. It was more trouble than it was worth, even though talking about it now helps me make sense of what happened. I also asked my family if they wanted to be part of this documentary, but they weren't interested. In Western culture, it has been normalized to yell out your mental pain. The person with the biggest lung capacity is congratulated for sharing. Anyone can become brave just by screaming. Anyone who writes a tell-all memoir is considered hugely courageous. In Eastern culture, the inbred consensus is, suck it up, buttercup. A valiant person silently endures all kinds of soul-crushing anguish. With grizzly bear stubbornness, I moaned about my family on the stages of international literary festivals, mistaking noise for personal strength. Thinking about all of this, after my dad dismissed me from the kitchen, it was at that precise moment when I saw myself from my parents' point of view. This was the pivotal scene in a silent horror film when you discover the hideous thing crouched on your doorstep. And then you realize this weirdo is your daughter. She is most certainly a monster, but you choose to let her come inside anyway. I realized it didn't matter if I shared family secrets across two continents or that my book was practically radioactive. As I reflected, I finally got it. I understood that it didn't matter to me if my family asked about my financial writing success or lack of it, or if they even approved of my book or thought I might have a sliver of literary talent. When I needed a place to stay, my parents let my broke ass inside their house. Even after I wrote a tell-all memoir about them, Their actions were far louder than their words. This, this was true bravery. This was love.
2: That doc was written by Lindsay Wong and produced by Tanera McLean. It was commissioned by Jennifer Warren and edited by Julia Poggle. Lindsay's memoir, The Woo-Woo, How I Survived Ice Hockey, Drug Raids, Demons, and My Crazy Chinese Family, is published by Arsenal Pulp Press. They kindly gave us permission to use the excerpts you heard. Lindsay is now working on a new book. It's called Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality. It's a collection of horror stories, some of which are based on real-life tales she's gathered from immigrant families, but this time spiced up with fictional supernatural elements. It is coming out next February. That's all for us this week. This episode of The Doc Project was produced by Taner McLean, Julia Poggle, and me. Althea Manasen is our digital producer. Alison Cook is our senior producer. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening.
0: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.